starting in verse 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You were also with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him, and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. You may all have a seat. And as you take your seats... Please go ahead and bow with me in a word of prayer as well. Father, as we just read from your word, we're reminded that we often can underestimate how our own fear of man might influence us. Help us to see with the eyes of faith that we have a God who is greater than men, who is greater than whatever circumstances or anxieties that we have. And Father, right now is a time of tremendous tension and unrest in our world with countries threatening other countries and no one sure of what will happen. And as much as these events may cause strife and conflict in our world, our minds turn to you, O Lord, who sits above it all, knowing that nothing happens apart from your control. From events as earth-shattering as one global power invading another nation to the smallest of the smallest as a sparrow falling to the ground. You know all of these things, and you allow and orchestrate all of them according to your divine plan to accomplish your purposes in our world. Lord, we pray for kings and those who are in high positions. For as much power and authority that they wield, you are the one who wields an authority above it all. The the mightiest and the most powerful ruler can be humbled by a man who died on the cross and submits his life and his rule to the lordship of Christ. And that's what we ask for. We ask for those who are running the affairs of our local and state and national governments, as well as those who wield that authority in other nations as well, to submit themselves to your lordship. And that can only happen through Christ. And Lord, we don't presume to understand how things will work out for good. And our minds don't need to have all of those answers, save what you have already revealed to us in your word. I ask and I pray that we wouldn't lean on our own understanding, for our understanding is limited, but that we would trust in you and your word with all of our hearts, and that this would be enough and sufficient for us. Lord, as a church, we come before you. We ask for your grace and your mercy. At this time, it's a season of many health issues affecting our church and those close to us. Lord, we lift up the Chungs as they grieve the recent passing of Christine's grandmother. We pray for Trisha's mother, who has been hospitalized, that her condition would stabilize. We pray for the Morales family, as Ricardo's father has also been battling health issues. And there are many others in our church who have recently been suffering through health issues themselves or have loved ones who have been struck by illness. And you know all of them. And though we may struggle to wrap our minds around why, 
As the psalmist often does, we return our hearts and our minds to the truth, to speak your truth to ourselves and to one another, and to cry out to you, Lord, for grace and peace. These things are reminders of the frailty of our own lives. None of us are guaranteed even another day. The same applies to our friends and our family, and even to our unbelieving friends and family. The present life is not our home, but a preparation for eternity. And we would all be wise to consider eternity when we consider how we live each day. Remind us of the hope that's found in heaven, that we might remember not to place our hope in earth. Remind us also of the effects of sin in our lives and in our world. Would you deepen our hatred and disgust of sin and strengthen our yearning for holiness? Remind us also that holiness comes through Christ. No one can please the Father apart from the Son. And the Son comes into our lives through your gospel, which is made available to us today. For those who have trusted in Christ, we rejoice and we thank you that sin and the flesh are not the end of the story. But the cross and the resurrection of Christ gives us an unshakable hope that can't be taken away. For those who have not trusted Christ as Savior, we ask that you reveal to them today that their sin affects all of us. And without Christ, there is no other means of hope, just distractions from acknowledging and confessing their state to you. But as hopeless as we may be without Christ, the incredible news of the gospel is that Christ offers a way of salvation that we could not find ourselves, and that salvation can be had today, now even. So I pray for anyone here or anyone listening who doesn't know Christ as Savior to first honestly assess where your life is at, whether you're guilty before the Lord, and if you are, to not ignore the salvation that's available to us in Christ. Lord, this is a testimony for everyone who has called upon your name. We praise you for it, that you would save sinners and think of those who are undeserving of it, which is all of us. Lord, we praise you and we thank you for all that you have done and all that you're continuing to do, even today and in the days to come. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, Kevin. Well, it's a mercy we don't deserve, myself especially, to be here on the Lord's Day with you all, um, but a mercy that brings great joy. For those of you who are going to stick around for Cornerstone afterwards, I'm going to make a plug now at the back. I think we have cards, um, or if you have paper, you can write out any questions that you have about anything. Russia and the Ukraine, whatever, basically, anything that comes up in the sermon. Um, and you can hand those in, and at the end of Cornerstone, we'll do the best we can to try and answer those. Okay, so um, we hope that primes you for what's to come, good things. Well, 1 Corinthians ten thirteen, in that verse, the Apostle Paul writes, No testing or no temptation has overtaken you, that is not common to man. No testing or temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. And as you heard Kevin pray for us, this has been a tough season for many members of our church. There are those who have lost loved ones. There are those who have loved ones who have been or are very sick. And there are a number of you 
um, our brothers and sisters who just have been squeezed in ways that are hard and sorrowful and difficult. This is the season where we're at in God's providential timing. We're coming to Matthew chapter 4 where the Lord directly addresses these things. And as we deal with challenges in our lives, testing, trials, when life is hard, when trials come our way, the temptation can arise to think or to say, why is this happening to me? The whys come out. And I think Eric addressed this as he shepherded us through that imprecatory psalm and through uh, our praise time. Why? Why are these things happening? And then it can go, why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to my family? Why does my life, why does my family, why does my church, why does my job, why do these things have to be so hard? And then it can become, is something wrong? Is something wrong with me? Is God punishing me? And this can happen especially for Christians or believers who try to do everything right. When we try to do everything right, our natural tendency can be, if I'm a child of God, if I do things right, why are these things happening to me? I did everything right. When you do everything right, when you obey God, when you do what He asks, when you make the sacrifices He calls for, shouldn't your life be better, not worse? Well, in God's providence this this morning, as we come to Matthew 4, God shows us through His beloved Son, Jesus Christ, the why. He shows us that trials and testing and suffering are not the exception for God's beloved children. They are a necessary part of God's perfect love for those he calls beloved. They're a necessary part of his perfect love for those he calls his beloved. For every victory, there is a battle. And a battle must be won. And for a true child of God, as we walk through this, I'm hoping that we'll begin to see the question, the real gospel question, when we talk about the gospel, the good news of what God has done to save sinners through the death and resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ. The good news of what God has done to adopt sinners and take undeserving sinners like you and I and clean them up and give them new lives and bring them and make them a part of his family and give them a seat at his table. When we think of the gospel, the question that the gospel really raises of each one of us, especially when our lives are difficult, is not, why me? The gospel question is, when it comes to trials and suffering and tests, why not me? Why not me? And this is the testimony of our text for this morning, which is Matthew 4, 1 through 11, where Jesus shows us the necessary roles of trials and testing and suffering in the gospel. And not just the gospel, brothers and sisters, but in the lives of those who live the gospel. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 3? We're going to go back a little bit to verse 16. And we'll read through 4.11 and then, as you also see, what's going to supplement our text as well is Deuteronomy 8. 
from which Jesus takes many of the quotes that he says here. Matthew 3.16, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, in Matthew 3, as we come to the end of Matthew 3, you see very clearly, Jesus does everything right. And he doesn't just do everything right for himself. He does everything right for sinners like you and I. And he does everything right, and he does everything right for sinners like you and I, according to God's word. And as we come to Matthew 4, it's right after Jesus' baptism, right after the heavens open up, right after the Spirit descends and rests on Him in the form of a dove. It's right after God publicly declares, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. What is Jesus' reward? Does he get a graduation present? Does he get the trip to Hawaii? Does he get the car? Does he get the house? Does he get the girlfriend? Does he get the great family? Does he get the good times? He did everything right. And he didn't just do it for himself. He did it for others. And yet we're told Jesus is immediately led by the Spirit. Not to Hawaii. He's led into the wilderness. And he's led to suffer severe testing by the devil. Not once, but three times. And this happens after he has fasted for 40 days and 40 nights and he is hungry. Now, brothers and sisters, for many, this inflicting of undeserved, because Jesus didn't deserve it, This inflicting of undeserved hardship and suffering is not only unloving, it is abusive. That is the standard of our society today. This is where we stand. 
If you make someone feel uncomfortable, if you hurt their feelings, if you do something they think they do not deserve or do not want, the standard is that is considered to be abuse. That is considered to be unloving. And sadly, what that does by that standard is it demeans those who truly do suffer abuse in our world today. Physical, emotional, spiritual, however you want to look at those who do truly suffer. And there have been many over the last 200 years who have said the cross is divine child abuse. Why would God do such a thing to the son he loves? The son who has done everything right to please his father. And this is what he gets. Well, in Matthew 4, Jesus shows the devil and he shows us why this is not the case. Why, in fact, it's quite the opposite and we have it backwards. Why this is one of the greatest expressions of the perfect love of a father. And he does so by pointing the devil in us to the word of the Lord. And that brings us to our first point this morning. The trials of God's children can only be rightly understood by the light of God's word. The trials of God's children can only be rightly understood by the light of God's word. Every time Jesus is tested, what does he say? He says, well, this is how I feel about it. He says, well, in my experience, he says, well, this is what I know and this is what I figured out. And this is what I've deduced, Satan, from what you're saying. No, he does not turn to his experiences, his intellect or his feelings or his reason. He doesn't look for a Bible apologetics lesson. He goes to the light and authority of God's word. And he says three times, every single time, it is written. It is written. It is written. And when he says it is written, he's making reference to words that have been written in scripture 1400 years before. And clearly for him, those words are still authoritative. Those words are still powerful. Those words are still necessary Those words are the only words that still matter. And through this, Jesus shows us it is the power, it is the authority, it is the light of God's word that enables Jesus to understand what's going on, that enables him to endure incredible suffering and duress and attack, and enables him to overcome his trials. And we see how Jesus functions with scripture. And it's very different than the way we function in America today. Jesus allows scripture to lead and interpret his experiences. He does not allow his experiences to interpret scripture. Scripture rules and interprets Christ's experience. Experience does not rule or interpret his view of Scripture. 
And it's a danger, brothers and sisters, and I raise it here. Because if we begin to view the world through the light of our hurt and our sorrow and our suffering, we lose the gospel and what we live by is our hurt, our suffering, and our pain. And it's not long before God's word is removed completely. And when God's word is removed, brothers and sisters, all we're left with is a sinful world. And all we're left with is our suffering and our pain and our sorrow that comes from living in a sinful world where people do sinful things. Jesus realizes not only for himself and for us, when things are hard, brothers and sisters, what we so desperately, desperately need is the power and the authority and the light of God's word, which shows us, in fact, God is not absent. He's very much present with his children in the face of their trials. And what Jesus does is he goes to the word of the Lord and the light that it brings in dark times. Very specifically, he goes to the book of Deuteronomy. And why does he go to the book of Deuteronomy? Well, we're going to spend the rest of this morning exploring why Jesus specifically goes to the book of Deuteronomy. And hopefully we'll lay a context for what's happening here in this text and the foundation for the next few weeks as we watch, walk through the trials that Jesus undergoes. Because there is no testing that is not common to men. And as Jesus walks through these three trials or these tests, they are the tests that we all face. Tests for are we going to sell out or are we going to live for our daily bread or are we going to obey God? Tests of are we going to aspire to have what we want on our terms or are we going to trust the Lord to bring it? And ultimately, who or what are we going to worship? Well, those are the tests and trials, brothers and sisters, that we face in our homes, our families, our work. And Jesus goes back to the book of Deuteronomy. Well, why does he go to Deuteronomy? Well, in Deuteronomy, God the Father reveals his right and perfect plan for his right and perfect son. And it's a right and perfect plan in Deuteronomy that necessarily involves testing and trials and suffering as a necessary part of God's perfect love for his children. God rolls all that out for his children in the book of Deuteronomy. And so this morning we're going to look at Deuteronomy primarily and use that as the light with which we see our suffering and our trials and the light with which we look at Matthew 4 and what Jesus is doing. Because it's not by accident that Jesus goes specifically three times to the book of Deuteronomy. Well, what's Deuteronomy? Deuteronomy, as you know, it's the fifth book or fifth section in the Torah, the instruction or the law, or what's also known as the five books of Moses. And it's that final section in the five books of Moses that serve as the foundation of all of Scripture, the foundation of our Bible, the very beginning, the blueprint of the gospel, the blueprint of God's word that points and leads us all to one place, to Christ and the cross. It's the beginning of the story of God's love letter to his children and describes how he leads his children through difficulties and distresses and hard times and he fights with them and he fights for them and he's with them every step of the way. And it's a story that ultimately brings us to the foot of the cross. 
And in this final chapter of the Torah, which is the book we call Deuteronomy, Jesus quotes this three times in Matthew 4. He quotes it 12 times in the Gospel of Matthew. And the only book in the Old Testament that Jesus quotes more than the book of Deuteronomy are the Psalms. And after Deuteronomy, the third one he quotes is Isaiah, and the fourth is Exodus. And as we come to that final section of the books of Moses, or the Torah, the instruction, in Hebrew, the name of this portion of God's word is taken, like all the Hebrew books in the Old Testament, the titles of the books are different than what we have. The titles are really just taken from the first words or the opening words of each of those books. So in Hebrew... Deuteronomy gets its name from those first words, Deuteronomy 1.1. These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness. It's known as these are the words from that sentence. These are the words, and you're to fill in the blank. These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness. Where did Jesus get baptized? There's a connection there. And as you go to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy is a series of sermons that Moses gives at the end of his life as the children of Israel, the second Exodus generation, the first Exodus generation, their parents have died during the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness after the Exodus. The second generation at the end of the 40 years, Moses is about to die and he gives this series of sermons as they're waiting on the plains of Moab in the wilderness of the Jordan River and they're waiting to come into the promised land. And these sermons are given around January or February in 1405 B.C. And in attendance there, and they're there to get them prepped, is a man named Joshua, the son of Nun, whose name means Yahweh is salvation. And Moses is preparing the people and preparing to hand them off to Joshua's leadership to lead them across the Jordan and to bring them into the promised land. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses, through his sermon, sums up the past 40 years' experience. He provides a summary to the power of the Holy Spirit of everything that's happened from the Exodus, from the time the Lord brought them out of Egypt as slaves and brought them through the waters of the Red Sea and brought them into the wilderness all the way through those 40 years up until the point where they're standing on the plains of Moab waiting to go into the promised land. And he does it in order to recap or summarize all that's happened from the light of God's word. So that they understand exactly what God was doing. And these words are given by God through Moses. In order to prepare his people for the next leg of the journey. They're going to come into the promised land. They're going to experience great materialism and great prosperity. They're going to experience all the fulfillment that God has promised them. And the big temptation is they're going to forget their God and their prosperity and in their blessing. And they're going to become prideful and they're going to say, well, this is because of us. Because we worked hard. We built these houses. We put this church together. We donated money. We did all of these things. And look at what we have. For most of us, brothers and sisters, it's a lot easier to forget God in the good times. When everything is going the way we want it. And when things are hard and you're in the wilderness and it seems like your back is up against the wall. 
And God wants you to have sweet and good times. That's not his end, but he does want his children to be happy. There's no question about that. But happiness is being with the Lord, brothers and sisters. It's not a big house. It's not a fast car. It's not all the things that give you whistles and bells for two or three minutes and then they're gone. But God also wants to protect the most important thing. His love for His children, which our pride and our unbelief destroy. And so the Lord reminds the children of Israel about all the tests and trials and hardships they've been through and how He's cared for them. And He also reminds them what His purpose was in doing that. He was preparing them to enter into the promised land and He was preparing them to celebrate His love and to protect His love, not just in the bad times, but the good times too. And we see the pattern here in Deuteronomy and Jesus leans on this and it's necessary for the people of God. God through His Word reminds us what He has promised and what He has done in the past So that we can understand what God is sovereignly doing today in the present. In order that we might live by faith for what God is going to do tomorrow. It's the same pattern over and over and over again. And it's the framework for the gospel. The reminder of what God has promised and done in our past. So that we can understand what God is doing in our present. So that we can live by faith for what God is going to bring tomorrow. And that, brothers and sisters, is a very different paradigm than the one that gets focused so often or we're tempted to think about when we suffer. Which begins, what I did for God in the past, what I did for others in the past, what they are doing to me in the present, and what I'm experiencing in the present... And what I think is going to happen in the future. And that all revolves around me, 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 I, I, I. And that, brothers and sisters, becomes the thinking that leads to discouragement and despair. And it leads to darkness because it removes the gospel and the word of God. And we're unable to see what God is doing. And we're unable to see our trials are hard. They are difficult. We do experience suffering. But they're not as bad as we think they are. Because God is certainly present in the trials and the suffering of his children. Well, that name, Deuteronomy, it means second law. We get it from the Greek and we get it from the Greek translation of the Hebrew. And the reason it's given that name second law is because in Deuteronomy at the end, God gives his people a second chance. He walks them through the history about how the children of Israel as a people blew it. They rejected the test that the Lord gave them. They complained. They were angry. They tried to lynch Moses. They basically told the Lord they knew better. They blew it. And they reaped the consequences of it, which is that first generation died in the wilderness. But as they come to the book of Deuteronomy, God at the end brings back through Moses the covenant again. The covenant that first made them the children of God. And he gives them a second chance. 
And it's the good news of the gospel, brothers and sisters, because our God is a God of second chances that takes sinners who have blown it and messed up and he gives them an opportunity again to be his children. And so this is where it gets that name, the second law or the second covenant. And Deuteronomy, it's a little bit like little, okay? God's not a coach. This is just an illustration, but I guess it's sports weekend, right? But anyways, it's about coaches when they have a team that's messed up in the first half and they pull them aside in the locker room during halftime and they point out the ways they've gotten away from the coach's plan, the ways they've been lazy, the ways they've neglected it, but they say, hey, what? Guess what? There is a second half. You have an opportunity to go out there and win this game. Victory is still at hand. And to some degree, the book of Deuteronomy is that for the children of Israel to say, You have an opportunity. God is showing you grace. He's giving you a second chance. So it's important to remember the word of the Lord. And it's important to remember what has happened during the first half. And as the Lord God comes and reminds them and he gets them ready for the second half for the promised land. He points out to them. That these trials and tests that they've experienced in the wilderness were not about God abandoning or punishing his children. To the contrary. Through the light of God's word, he shows them they were about his perfect love for them. If you have your Bibles, have a look at Deuteronomy chapter 1. And we'll read verse 30 and 31. Deuteronomy 1, 30 and 31. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you, just as he did, past tense, for you in Egypt, before your eyes, and in the wilderness, where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you, as a man carries his son, all the way that you went, until you came to this place. Now, part of the concern about going into the promised land is the children of Israel didn't want to go in because they were afraid because even though it was a prosperous land, the people who lived there had much bigger cities than they'd experienced before in that time in the wilderness, and they were a lot bigger and scarier. And the Lord is exhorting them, you don't need to be afraid of the trials to come. Remember the trials you experienced before. Remember how I took you through the waters. Remember how I took you through the wilderness. Remember how I was with you every step of the way. Remember how I fought for you. Remember how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. Brothers and sisters, as you go through the Psalms and you see David, he's getting chased by Saul. He's on the run. He's living in caves. He's living in the wilderness. What does he do in those Psalms? He goes back frequently and remembers what God has done for him in the past. And how God has been good for his word. Taking care of his promises and looked after him. I might have a hard time seeing where the Lord fits in this. But I know the Lord's pattern. I know his steadfast love and his faithfulness. And similarly for us brothers and sisters. We can't take away one another's burdens. We're not Jesus. But we certainly can remind each other of the ways in which those markers where we know and remember where the Lord has mightily stepped into our lives. And we've seen how through it all he's been carrying us every step of the way. Well, this is what the Lord is showing them. 
He's showing them through the light of his word. You know what? I was not absent. I was actually present with you every step of the way. And I carried you as a man carries his son. And this brings us to our second point this morning. Our second point this morning. According to God's word, trials and tests in the wilderness are for beloved sons. According to God's word, trials and tests in the wilderness are for beloved sons. They're not for God's enemies. They're for his sons who he loves. And in Deuteronomy, the Lord God reminds Israel by his promise and by his grace, he has saved them and he has made them his beloved sons. That's the foundation of Deuteronomy. It begins with a father-son relationship. Uh, a relationship that they didn't deserve. Why did they become sons? Because he delivered them and saved them and took them out of Egypt, took them into the wilderness, entered into a covenant with them, and he made them his own children. And he cared for them as his own sons. And so in Deuteronomy 1, 30 through 31, he's reminding them how a good Lord and how a good father takes care of his children. He cares for them And he carries them each step of the way. And this was a necessary lesson that they needed to learn. Why? Because formerly they were slaves. And formerly their father, figuratively speaking, was Pharaoh. They had an abusive father who took advantage of them and exploited them. And that shaped and informed the patterns of how they thought about themselves, what they did, and how they responded. And brothers and sisters, we need this message because so often we think of the Lord in the same way. We've come up and we've had difficult families. Perhaps we've had parents who have dealt with us in anger or have punished us for self-serving means. We've gone through and the Lord has saved us and brought us out of those things. And we forget many times and we think, well, this is what my spouse is doing. Or this is what the people are doing. Or we look through everything through the lens of that hurt. And there's a time, as you know, parents who adopt children or they bring foster children into their home. They will explain to you and tell you there's a period and a time where that child is always suspicious and they need to learn. And it takes time and it takes love and it takes nurture and it takes care. And it also takes challenges and trials for that child to understand, no, this person isn't going to abandon me as soon as it gets hard. This person isn't here to take advantage of me. This person is here with me, not for himself, but for me through thick and through thin. And the only way we get a chance to see that, brothers and sisters, is when it's hard. In trials, it's not all with ice cream and good times. The assurance we need about love is that someone is going to be with me when it costs them and when it's hard, not when it's good times and when it's easy. And the Lord points out here in Deuteronomy 1, 30 through 31, he says, look back, look back, look back. When did I let you down? When did I make sure that you weren't fed? When did I not, not come and bail you out? When did I not speak life and love into your, into your lives? He's teaching them what it means to have a good father. He's teaching them what it means to be a good son. And he's teaching them what it means to abide and walk in a good father's love. That's what those tests and trials are for. And if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Deuteronomy 8. Deuteronomy 8, the portion from which Jesus quotes. Why does Jesus remember this? Because he's a good son. 
Deuteronomy 8.2, the Lord says to them, And you shall remember the whole way, not part of the way, the whole way. We get very selective in our memory, right? We remember the things that make us look good. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. That he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Now in scripture, brothers and sisters, a good father is not simply someone who brings a child into this world or into his family. A good father is not simply someone who pays the bills, puts food on the table, and pays for his kids' college tuition. A good father in Scripture is a father who in love takes complete responsibility for the life of his child. A good father in Scripture is a father who in love takes responsibility for the entire life of his child. And in Scripture, and even in the Jewish tradition today, children up until the age of 13, anything that they did, if they stole, if they violated, if they did anything, the parents were responsible They had to take ownership of that child. And from beginning to end, one of the key ways in Scripture that God shows a father is to take responsibility for his son. It involves exposing or addressing anything in a child's life that is evil and destructive to the child or to the others in the family or in the community. That is part of what it means to be a good father. Exposing and addressing anything in that child's life that is going to destroy that child or destroy others. And the two most destructive tendencies in a child's heart, from Adam and Eve onwards, are the tendencies to to pride and unbelief in the goodness of God and His Word. Those are the two things that destroy everything. Two patterns that destroy any relationship. Pride and mistrust. And brothers and sisters, even unbelievers know that. You read any of the accounts from unbelieving marriage counselors. And they talk about what arrogance does or suspicion or mistrust in a relationship. Or you hear anybody who speaks and they're not even believers. Well, the trust was broken. The trust was broken. They talk about these things. Arrogance and mistrust. They're the two things that destroy our relationship with the Lord and they destroy our relationship with one another. And if you don't believe me, go out and try it. Just be prideful and arrogant and mistrust everything someone does for you and see how far that relationship goes. Well, in Deuteronomy, the Lord God reminds Israel of their pattern. They believed consistently that they knew better than God. And they believed that they consistently knew better than Moses. Based on their experiences back in Egypt. Life was better in Egypt. We had garlic. We had leeks. We had all of these great things. And you brought us out here to the wilderness to kill us and to die? Does that sound familiar, parents? You brought us out here? Okay, well, the Lord is doing it out of kindness for them. 
The Lord is omniscient. He knows everything. He doesn't need to know what's in our hearts. He knows what we're going to say and do before we say it. So I believe when he writes here to know, it's a rhetorical statement. He's showing them, look, it's easy. Children, what children want to do is children will always say the things they think their parents want to hear. It's why we don't allow children to come to the Lord's table. It's why we don't baptize children at this church. Hey, they just want to be on our team. Yes, you say good, I'll say good. Yes, you say bad, I'll say bad. Okay? You say you're a Christian, we'll be Christians too until we get to college or get our job and we get our paycheck and and we get all the things out there. It's not until children are tested and they go through a trial that they begin to say, okay, what is it that truly belongs in my heart? What do I own? What do I believe? Or what belonged to my parents? Or what was just convenient for the time? There's this huge distinction between professing believers and believers who have been through the fire and say, no, he is my God, he is my Lord. And we see what the children of Israel need and brothers, what we need so often. We need humility and we need faith because that's what allows us to see how much the Lord loves us. Even in our relationship, what stops us from seeing how much another person in our family loves us? It's our pride that we know better, and it's our belief in ourselves. I know what's best for this family. And God graciously brings trials to humble us and expose what's in our heart for us to see. Well, maybe I'm not as holy and righteous and smart and wise as I thought I was. Maybe I need to listen to the Lord a little bit more. Maybe I need to pray. And brothers and sisters, when do you pray? Do you pray in the good times? I hope so. If you're like me, it's harder to pray in the good times. But when things are hard, when things don't seem fair, when things are difficult, when it's painful, oh my goodness, great quality prayer time. Right? And yet isn't the reality, brothers and sisters, that every breath we take, every step we take, depends on the goodness and grace of the Lord. And we so desperately need Him every minute and every moment. That's what we learned last week. We have no righteousness and good in and of ourselves. The only righteousness we have is Christ. So wherever I go, whatever I do, my goodness, do I need Jesus? Absolutely. Can I hear an amen? You know, we we need it. And so God graciously brings trials and testing into our lives, not more than we can handle, to show us things that he's working on in our heart. And that's the beauty of it is by the time it gets exposed, the Lord is already working in our lives. He's there. That's why it's coming out. It's like a doctor who lances a boil. By the time it comes out, everyone says, this is terrible. Well, it's because the physician has been working on it. So we see, and even as we heard in our reading this morning about Peter coming in and following Jesus into the courts of the high priest and saying to Jesus, I'll never deny you. I'll die before, you know, I let anything happen to you, Jesus. And then he's there by himself in the courtyard of the high priest in Mark 14 or 15. And then at that point, he denies Jesus three times. Well, we see in the hands of the Lord. That trials and tests expose and address pride and unbelief. And they show us our need for humility and faith in a good father. And it's in this way that God uses these tests and trials to teach us 
how to live the gospel. Not how to profess the gospel, but how to live the gospel. Have a look at Deuteronomy 8 verse 3. It says, and he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know. I think he uses the word know a lot there. That he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Now in that section that Jesus quotes, The word know is used three times. The word live is used twice. This is about knowing firsthand who God is and what he does. This is about knowing firsthand what it means to live the gospel. This is what is about really having this as part of your life. The good news that God is indeed your father. He has saved you and he's doing a good work in your life. But he's not finished yet. And you, I'm sure, have hung out with the seminarians, right? There's a big difference between someone who knows a lot of information about the Bible and can rhyme off every detail and one who's been tested and tried and been humbled and he lives it. It's day and night. God's not interested in your profession, brothers and sisters. He's interested in your confession and that you might be able to live his love in the fullness with which he's given it. And that's why he brings tests and trials. It's to make you know that every aspect of your life is sustained, not by the size of your car, the house, the food on the table, though we need those things, that ultimately everything that we have that is good has come from the mouth of God. So you better take that word seriously. And what does he go on to say? Verse 4. Your clothing did not wear out on you. And your feet did not swell these 40 years. That God's love and his care for his children. In the end we will see. It's hard to see at the time. Is perfect. And then in verse 5. What does he say? Know then in your heart. That as a man disciplines his son. The Lord, your God, disciplines you. Now, we've talked about this before. Discipline in Scripture is discipline than what a lot of us, God, is discipline in the home. And that's why we have to come to God's Word. For many of us, discipline was punishment. Okay? For many of us, it was the anger of our parents because they were unhappy with how we were behaving or we weren't pleasing their agenda. But here in Scripture, discipline refers to instruction and training and strengthening. In scripture, discipline is redemptive in the hands of God. It protects life and it leads to victory. And we think of all the people who are important in our lives. We think of athletes competing in the Olympics. We think of surgeons. We think of soldiers. How many surgeons do you want who have not been tested before they come and operate on you? I want zero, okay? We look through these things and we see to be what we've been called to be, it's necessary for testing because testing strengthens, testing corrects, testing shows us what we need to work on. Testing brings us to that place where where we are able to do what we've been called to do. And what is the object of God's discipline? 
It's to grow our humility. It's to grow our faith in him. It's to grow our love for our father and appreciation and awe of who he is. And this is what he teaches us in verse 6, where he talks about walking in his ways, keeping his commandments, fearing him. And that's fearing him with a good fear and awe. Just to realize that God is able to handle all things and he's able to take care of us. And then in verse 7, he shows us what the end of this is. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land. What's so hard in trials and tests, brothers and sisters, is the pain sometimes is so big, it's hard to see the end. It is hard to see the end. But that's why God gives us the word, and that's why God gives us fellow companions, so that we can remind one another, rather than trying to figure it out and being like Job's friends and telling someone why this, well, this is happening because you didn't make this decision. Would have, should have, could have. No. It's, I don't understand why you're going through this. I know that it's hard. But God promises that if we endure and trust him, he is going to bring us to a good end. And what is that good end, brothers and sisters? Is it the spouse, the wife, the family, the big house, big car? No. The good end is to be like God and to be with God. To be like God and to be with God. Because that is God's desires for his sons. That we would be like him and that we would be with him. And that's what the promised land was all about. The end, brothers and sisters, is not comfort, it's Christ. The end, brothers and sisters, is not comfort, it's Christ. Tests and trials and discipline are all about teaching us what it means to be in the care of a good father. Have a look at verse 16. He talks about how he is the one who fed you in the wilderness with manna. That your fathers did not know that he might humble you and test you for what end? To do you good in the end. In the end. And we have to say that in the end. That there's a time and a place. And through that, God is showing them. There is not a circumstance. There is not a trial. There is not a suffering that God's promise and his presence is not greater than. The reason he took them through all those hard times is he was showing them, guess what? No matter what the situation is, I love you and you can trust me. There is nothing that can separate a child from the love of its good father. And this is the point that the author of Hebrew makes in Hebrews 12.7. He says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And the ultimate purpose of tests and trials, brothers and sisters, is to give us that assurance that comes from faith that we belong to God. And we belong to a good father, not a bad father. And this brings us to our final point for this morning, which we'll tie up with. Pain is not always punishment according to God's word. Pain is not always punishment according to God's word. We have this tendency to think, anytime I hurt, someone's punishing me for something. But as we come to scripture, we see that that is not how the Lord looks at it. But the implication here is, 
Sometimes it is. And how do we know when the pain in our lives is punishment or judgment as opposed to a trial or a test? Well, the Lord makes that distinction. Have a look at Hebrews 12, 11. It's up on the screen. For the moment, all, not some, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. To who? To those who have been trained by it. Not for everybody. So for God's children, Scripture makes it clear. Trials and tests, they're very real. And they bring very real pain and suffering. Let's not minimize it when a brother or sister is going through a trial or a test. Oh, it's no big deal. It is a big deal. You'll get over it. You know, let's see. Okay. But what trials and tests do is they present us with a choice. Will we be trained by it? Will we submit as Jesus did? Will we say thy will be done? Will we trust the Lord? Will we receive this as the discipline of the Lord? When the employer deals unjustly with us. When the family member says unkind things. When we've tried to love and be kind. When we've served in ministry and all we do is get slandered or trampled. Will we receive it and say okay but Lord your will be done. You will work good in the end. I can trust you to fight for me. That based on the trials and your word. You are here with me. Carrying me every step of the way. Or. Will I reject it? God I don't deserve this. Will I resist it? Let me find an alternative or go somewhere else. Will I rebel against it in pride and unbelief? I don't deserve this. Why is this happening to me? Why are all those other people, they did less than I did at church, and their lives are so much better? Brothers and sisters, if if we don't repent of our pride and unbelief, God does promise punishment. If we inevitably hang on to our pride and unbelief and we become bitter and resentful and destructive to ourselves and the family of God and others. If we forget God, because that's what it is, then indeed God promises to bring very painful punishment for pride and for unbelief and for sin. Have a look at the end of Deuteronomy 8, verse 19 and 20. He says, and if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you will surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. How do we make that distinction? Well, this is where the word of the Lord comes in. Have I resisted the word of the Lord? Have I broken the word of the Lord? Am I in unrepentant sin and it's there in scripture? Well, if you're suffering, don't boast about it. It may be punishment. And this, brothers and sisters, is why we need to know the word of the Lord so well. So we see very clearly and God's given us his word so that we can 
know very clearly where we stand in the Lord. And he brings affliction so that we learn his word. So that we can go sometimes, well, is it, is it because I did something wrong? Well, let's open up the scriptures and see. And sadly, we see frequently the complaints and discontent by many is, well, I'm suffering for something good. But we've got to look at our lives. And God gives us two very clear ways in this text to see where we stand with him. Is my life and the pattern of my life contrary to God's word? Is there unrepentant sin in my life? And the other aspect, is there fruit in keeping with righteousness? What's the fruit of my life? Is it bitterness, discontent? Are they the thorns of the flesh? Anger, strife, jealousy, envy? Probably likely that this suffering isn't coming as a trial and a test. That maybe the Lord's getting your attention with the rod. Okay? And so we look at the man who takes a big money job. That takes him away from his family. Takes his family away from the church. And then experiences conflict in his marriage. And experiences rebellion with his children. That, brothers and sisters, is not a trial. That's not... God's giving me a trial here, just going to endure this, just keep working at this big job, basically, where I get validated on a regular basis. And, you know, the Lord is the only one who can save my, that wife of mine and those children of mine. No, it's very clear. This pattern of life is you've gone after the things of the world and things are hard for you. And many are the sorrows are those who worship after other gods and go after gods. Okay. But what about the man who takes the job that keeps him close to God? That keeps him close to God's people? That keeps his family close to the word of God? Even though it pays less. Even though he is not sure how he's going to make ends meet. Even though he's not sure what the year is going to bring. That, brothers and sisters, is a trial. Because that man is probably on his knees praying to the Lord. Lord, look, I've done everything you've asked me to. And now I'm in a pinch. Would you help me? And that hopefully is the man as he's humbled who goes to his friends and others and says, listen, you need to pray for me. I I believe I've done everything for the sake of Christ and my family to bring them together. And it just seems every corner I turn, it seems like it's hard, not only for me, but for my wife and my children. And brothers and sisters, we've seen that in this church. And we've seen others who have come who have said, what an encouragement. What an encouragement to spend time with this person. Who? The one who's got the big money and everything's going... No, the the one to be with those who have said, we've made hard decisions. Our life is difficult. And we're still nervous from time to time. Where are kids to go to school? What goes on? To say, you know what? There's something more than all of this stuff that we clamor after in Silicon Valley. Christ is good. It's worth being with him. Brothers and sisters, as we walk down these paths and we see these two choices that the Lord lays before us, we're brought to Matthew chapter 4 where Jesus does not complain, reject, or resist. Instead, he is led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And he's willing to undergo the testing that we all deserve and that he doesn't deserve. And he does so as he shows us what it means to have a perfect father who loves a perfect son. Close in prayer. Lord Jesus.
We need you and we need your love for the trials and tests that have come our way and many in our church at this time are just weighed down, Lord. We just pray for them. We do not want to minimize the suffering and the hurt and the grieving. And we know we cannot carry that burden, but we can walk with them. We can pray for them. And I just pray, dear Lord, that they would see the end through the present suffering and pain, that they would see what they're going through through the lens of your word and the gospel, which says that there is a cross, that weeping lasts for the evening, but joy comes in the morning, that they would see that through this, you are strengthening their faith, you are growing them as sons, and you are preparing them for a good end. That one day, Lord willing, I hope we'll all be able to see and celebrate together. Because you are a God who keeps your promises. You are a good father who loves your children perfectly. In your name we pray. Amen.